welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast sponsored by Harbro. And this week we've got uh, not just one, but two firsts. That uh, The first person that we've had who is farming in mainland Europe, a, a farmer from France, and also the first person, I believe, to originate from, uh, from Africa, from Zimbabwe, Gavin Franklin. Gavin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. And uh, Gavin, if we can just start by talking about your earlier life. Uh, I said you were in Zimbabwe, and is that where you born and grew up there? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a fourth generation Zimbabwean. I was born this area, or four generations all farmed out there. We had milked 300 dairy cows and had about 400 hectares of, of arable. Dairy farming had always been. Is that one of the main um, main lines in Zimbabwe, or was it, should I say? No, not really. Tobacco and, and maize probably was the main agriculture in Zimbabwe. But I mean, dairy, they were they were in, in Rhodesia times anyway. We were, the country was self-sufficient in milk and milk products. Okay. So it was it it was reasonable size. We were probably among the bigger bigger farmers in the country, not the biggest, but among the bigger ones. Okay, and, uh, and obviously most of the farmers there, of course, would have been would, talk, would have been uh, white farmers back uh, there in the day, and then uh, a few problems arose around that, and you'd be you were caught up in the middle of that, I think. And so, you, you, who who are you actually farming with when you were still? Because you've been gone from Zim now for nearly twenty years, is that right? So, who who were you farming with then when when uh, when you came up? The original farm was a family farm. Um, so I was farming on that farm with my, with my with my dad and my sister, and then we bought the next door farm from Anglo American when they closed up their farming operations, um, and that we bought that in the late eighties. And it was when we bought it, it was just virgin bush, mm-hmm. and we were busy developing that. Um, and so that's where I, that's where I was mostly operating. Okay. And yeah, then we got we got all snapped up with the politics and and got got issued escorted off at a fairly rapid rate. So Mugabe was uh, president, and and what actually happened for those <laughs> listeners across the world that don't really know what actually did happen in the way of politics? Did they just decide that uh, they didn't want you guys there anymore, and that was the end of it? Um, it was all tied up with the economy was collapsing, and then he held a a referendum to change the constitution to basically put himself in into power for life. And he lost he lost the referendum. Um, and it was viewed as the commercial agricultural sector who'd who'd largely voted against him. And the fact that, you know, the individual number of, of commercial farm owners was was insignificant, but it was largely the workers that had voted the farm workers, which was the biggest employment sector in the country, had voted against him. Um, but then it was dressed up as a, you know, the white man owns all the land, all the good land kind of thing. Um, it had been Zimbabwe for 20 years by that time, okay. you know, and, you know, the, the farm that we'd bought, we'd bought with a certificate, you know, but once it became Zimbabwe, you had to get permission from the government to, to sell any farmland. Um, they had a, a first right of refusal and we had all those certificates to say that they didn't want it when we bought it. But that by the, by, by the time they, you know, the economy was falling apart and, and, and that it didn't matter. They just took whatever they wanted. And, and so they literally just uh, took the farm? Yeah. On, in our particular case, um, they arrived, a, a gang, there was an there was um, incident. They were trying to evict a farmer down the road from us. Um and he'd been, and they'd beaten up all his labor force, and he'd been ferrying guys to the hospital. And one of these guys had jumped out into the middle of the road, and he'd hit him and killed him. Um, and so then the whole thing just blew up into a really big violence, and the whole district then 
um, all the farmers were evicted. They arrived at our place at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night and said, right, you've got five minutes, put your dogs and your kids in the car and go. If you go fast, we won't, we won't hurt you. Jesus. Um, so, behind. yeah, that's what we did. Left, left everything behind and, and, and four generations of farming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tough times. Yeah, we got we did get back in get, get, did get back in with the police the following day, um, just to try and recover any any personal items that had been left behind, but they they completely looted the house. There was basically nothing left. And and the livestock, did they take the livestock too? At that point, yeah, we weren't allowed to go back and farm. On that farm I didn't have any of the milking cows, I had all the young stock and, and sheep and goats there. Um so no, we did we we didn't get any of the livestock back or anything like that. You know, in theory, it was all valued, and 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 one day we might get some compensation, but that was that was twenty two years ago now. <laughs> Not going to have no um, terrifying times and and times that obviously will live in your in your memory and the memory of a lot of other people. And I just yeah, it was quite. That's why I suppose I wanted to sort of highlight how how terrible those times were <laughs> back then. But uh, as you said to me before, it makes you realise uh, what's important in your life, uh, Gavin. <laughs> Oh, very much so. You know, it was it was a you know a, a very sharp lesson in that that stuff is not important. You know, as long as you as, as long as you can keep the people safe, that's that's what matters. As long as you got you know you can get you can get hold of some food. You know, the television and the hi fi and all that sort of stuff really doesn't matter because you can always replace it. Oh, fair enough. And as I said, it change, obviously changed your outlook on life. And and then uh, uh, we 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 wind up where you are now, and we'll go into that in a bit more detail at the moment. But uh, you're in um, southwest France, uh, an hour or so, hour or two from. from where I am, and you're just on the on the north side of the door doing there. I think. And what made you? How did you get here? What what was the transition from leaving Zimbabwe with nothing to going into France and farming? Um, well, my my wife, who is English, father was living in France at the time okay. um, when we lost the farm, and we were sort of scouting about, you know, trying to decide what we were going to do next. And we'd we'd looked at other places in Africa. We looked at possibly going up to Nigeria. The Nigerian government at the time were coming down to Zimbabwe looking for farmers. Okay. We looked into that. We were looking in, looking in Mozambique at options there, and then Helen, my wife's dad, said, "Listen, the French government are looking for farmers. There's installation grants and and bank guarantees, and that if you come and install in France." Okay. Um, so we we came out and spent a number of trips. Come, came out here with him, and we drove around uh, probably most of Western France, talking to the various. Um, Chambre d'agricultures in each department. Um, and we looked at the climate and said, oh, well, we don't want to be north of the Loire because it's too cold and wet. Mm-hmm. And then eventually found a farm in the Dordogne had a rent, mm-hmm. um, rented that, got set up with the government. The government guaranteed all our loans to buy the, buy the first load of sheep. Right. And that's kind of that. That's kind of that's kind of how you got there and, and moving on. So that was nearly twenty years ago, and as you said, you did start uh, sheep farming there, and you, you farm you run out two hundred and fifty ewes now. I think it would take a while to build up to that, maybe. Uh, yeah. Well, I say we we were at, at probably we started off at about I think one hundred and fifty the first couple of years, but the 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 purchase of the initial initial ewes was was the government guaranteed the bank loans. Um, so we borrowed the money, but but through the young farmer scheme here in France, they guaranteed the loans for us to buy the buy the first sort of batch of sheep. And, and, um, and then we did about the first eight or nine years selling all our lambs lambs on the wholesale market, and you know the prices didn't move in the f- nine years. Our prices never changed, although all our inputs ever went up and up and up. 
So our listeners here, a lot of our listeners would, would know nothing about farming in France, but farming, the British always say, well, the French look after their farmers before everybody else, and the farmers are sort of very vigilant and, 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 and a powerful lobby. And how did you find that sort of moving in, into being an outsider, I suppose, moving in there with, with the French? The French government obviously looked after you, but the rest of the farmers, did they take you into the fold and go, you're one of us and this is how we do it? Um, yeah, to an extent, the only, you know, the, the, the thing that, you know, for me coming from Africa where we were, you know, where we didn't have any sort of backup systems at all is, is that here, everybody follows the laid down rules and recommendations of what you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as you want to do something slightly out of the box, you know, you are just, you know, from another planet. When we arrived here and we said, right, well, we want a lamb outside and, you know, we don't want a, you know, a very high producing flock. We want one good lamb, lamb per sheep and we want them outside because we didn't have expensive infrastructure and barns and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we were considered like we were, we'd come from Mars. We really were. It is. I wouldn't say you're in exactly in sheep country. I suppose the sheep, the, the, the large population of the sheep, would be further north of you, up to sort of Limoges. Yeah, but are there, are there many sheep around you, or would you be more arable where you are? Um, we're right on the edge of the grapevines. Um, so west of us is all into grapevine country, cognac, and then down into Bordeaux, yeah. and then sort of north northeast of us is up on chalkland, and that's all cereals. We we're in a sort of it's called the Forêt de Double, and it's it's very heavy clay. Um, so there's a small amount of of, of arable. Um, there's a couple of sheep flocks around us, um, but nothing significant. And then beef and forestry is the big one. I know the heavy clay because we have the same on our place. And uh, when we say heavy clay, I mean, you could build houses with this stuff, wouldn't you? And you, you walk across a ploughed field in, in your Wellingtons and you'll get about 30 yards before you're carrying 10 kilos each on each foot and can't go any further. It's real sticky shit, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you need a jackhammer in the summer. <laughs> yes, of course. And uh, <laughs> do, do you irrigate at all? I mean, you, you, you are pretty close to the door in there. Is there irrigation? Do you have a lake? Do you irrigate anything? Um, no, no, all ours is all, all unirrigated permanent pasture. And so with regards to payments from the government, obviously, um, I suppose the controversy in this podcast is that, you know, Britain having gone through Brexit and, and left their subsidies behind, the, the subsidy system still operates in France, doesn't it? And, and how does that work these days? Is it, is it headage or is it acreage or, or, or is there none? Yeah, there is. It's, it's, a, it's a blend of the two. Um we get it so so much per hectare and then so much per head as well. Um, it is changing every year. It's getting more and more emphasis on the environmental side of things. So you get if if your stocking rates are too high, you get disadvantaged um, because they figure you you know you're farming with too much fertilizer and too intensively and that sort of thing. So the emphasis is is every year there's more and more emphasis on the environmental side of it. You know we we we've now got to to get maintain our payments we've now got to have um wildflower strips and and nature strips around the edges of the fields and that sort of thing okay. but as you said you run 250 sheep and, and, and no arable there at all or, no nothing at all or permanent pasture okay and uh what sort of acres are you running that on uh, um that many sheep on then uh... um it's quite flexible we're on uh, i've got 46 hectares of grass that's actually you know either either we own or or is on on a long-term lease okay. And then we do probably another, as I said, it's very variable depending on the year. During the winter, we run around on, you know, on stubbles and that sort of thing, cleaning up for people. 
I've actually picked up about 15 hectares this year. Of somebody said, I've got enough hay in the barn. He's a, he's a beef guy up the road. He said, I've got enough hay in the barn. I don't need to cut it this year. Come and graze it. Excellent. There's a few of those about. I know we've got another friend uh, further south there that's a similar thing that picks up a lot of grazing around about that people don't want. Let's just have a look at the sheep themselves. And uh, I remember asking you what, what sheep you breed, and you gave me a list of about uh, 20 different ones that you tried. So just run through what, you know, what works and, and what did work and what didn't work in the, in the way of breeds uh, for your setup. Right. Okay. Well, we we started off with a meat variety of a lacoon for our ewes, um, which is a I think it's basically just a low producing milk sheep, um, and then we had Ile de France rams on those, and those for our con- our conditions were an absolute disaster. Really? Okay. Um, they couldn't cope with the wet in the winter, and they you need to pour more more stock feed down them than than a than a pig to get any weight on them. But Ile de France originates from where? That is round about your area. They are. Not, um, no, I think they're more north of France, up in the up on the plateau in the centre of France. I think. Okay. So, so we obviously um, the Ile de France went. So, where did you go from there? I mean, there's a lot of as as um, we know, there's a lot of different varieties of sheep in France, and and, and being a diverse country. Yes, a huge, huge amount. After that, we we tried. Uh, we had some chamois rams for a bit, mm-hmm. um, which are a it's an it's an old old rare breeds race, but they they were very short, very heavy. Bred for, bred for largely for um, use in orchards. And the peculiarity about them is they don't stand up on their back legs and they don't lift their heads up too high. Okay. They're quite, quite um, the ground sheep anyway. So I they don't prune the trees too much in theory. I see, I understand. I had a few chamois myself when we first came in. They are quite low to the ground. Yeah. Where they, there are a few in the UK round and about, I know, but they're sort of like a smaller charley, I suppose, but quite stocky, aren't they? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and so we had those for a while. Then after that, I had a, I had a charley ram for a while, um, which I lost through um, heat stress day after I shot him, the second, second year I had him. Um, standing in the shade and he just fell down dead. I think, you know, and talking to the vet, he said, yeah, well, he, I mean, he was an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous animal. And he said, well, he's just got so, so much muscle on him, he just can't get rid of enough heat when it gets up to 40 degrees. 40 degrees would be quite rare, though. I mean, I'm a little bit south of you. And before, generally in the summer, we see temperatures sort of 28 to 35, don't we? Which is, it, 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 we can cope with when it gets to 40 and, and nobody can do anything, in, not even, not even it, the humans. It, the yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, and then subsequent to that, we've had um, Rusal West, which I've, which I've done well with. Um, the females are very, very scatty. Though. They, they, they run a mile from you as soon as they see you. There'll be a lot of people nodding their heads on this podcast when you've just said that statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it makes lambing outside interesting because you're trying to catch mum and baby. You 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 got you got to run the whole damn field. And I've also now just just the last three or four years, I've had some Noir de Valet um, rams in, which are they're a black, fairly old breed, but in in theory they'll breed at any time of the year. Um, and they're, they're a tough animal. Those, you know, the half-breeds I've been, females I've run with those, now they, they're they a tough, they're, you know, they don't mind the winter or the heat or anything like that. Okay. And when, when do you lamb? What time of year do you lamb like that, if you're outside? Um, norm, normally I start on about the 4th or 5th of April, something like that. Um, you know, I, I much prefer to wait for the days to get long so that, you know, I can actually see what I'm doing. And also because they're outside, the grass is nice and nice and green. So, that, you know, they're going to they're gonna lamb with a decent amount of milk. Do you run into, we, I lamb earlier than that because you know, we tend to lose the grass round about uh, you know, in the middle of July. And if you're trying to finish lambs in August, then uh, all of a sudden they're, they're grazing on bare pasture. Is that the same with you on that, on that hard clay land? Um, yeah, very, very much so. Um, 
but I tend my most of my lambs. I'll run them on until probably ten, eleven months old before before we put them through the butchery. Okay, okay, and that's what I was going to come on to. That uh, Gavin is that you run a, a successful uh, butchery business there now, which I don't know you started over the, over the last few years, and and uh, I suppose that started with you said before you were selling your your <laughs> lambs wholesale when we started selling your lambs uh, wholesale, and then uh, you went into that side of it. So just talk us through how that came about. Uh, well, so that was you know it was largely a financial crisis you know we just with a wholesale business we weren't big enough to cover you know pay ourselves a decent decent salary so it was either got get really really big or look for something else to do um and trouble trying to get any bigger was we just couldn't find enough land for it and we happened to have a friend down the road who was a um, retired english guy who'd done sausages and bacon and turkeys and whatever in in just outside colchester somewhere and then when he'd retired, he'd come across here, but he'd brought a whole bunch of his, his kit with him, the sausage machine and the mincer and the mixer and that sort of thing. And we got to know him quite well. And he said, well, why are you messing around selling, selling whole carcasses? Why don't you cut them up? And he said, yeah, well, yeah, have the machinery, pay me when you can, and I'll show you how to do the sausages. So that was 2011 we started that. Mainly lamb sausages here at um no so the lamb we were we were cutting that up into you know in, just into chops and that we get, we get a better price for most of it that way and then we started all at the same time we started off buying in pork from a neighbor um and then you know processing that into an english style sausage which you know the amount of english people around here and they couldn't get a decent english style sausage uh, so we were largely doing sausage and bacon initially. You can definitely demand for English bacon around the, the door door, and that's for English British bacon, should I say, around the door door. And if you cure it right, there's, uh, there's there'll be people queuing at your door. I'm sure for that. Um, yeah, well, I say we, you know, we we do two weekly markets, um, and yeah, you know, we, we we do very well out of it. And what and what sort of volumes are we looking at? Because I mean, you said you've got two hundred and fifty ewes, and even if they're having one apiece, that's two. That's a couple of hundred lambs a year that you're putting away through the businesses. What what sort of volumes are we looking at there with and with the sausages as well? I think you do a fair, fair chunk of sausages every week, don't you? We're probably processing as a, yeah about four lambs a week and probably two pigs a week, something like that. Okay. And what number? What what sort of number of weight of sausages are you, are you run in a batch? Very variable depending on the time of the year, but probably. Probably ninety hundred kilos a week, something like that. That's all going out through through two markets. Two markets, and we do a couple of um, delivery routes as well. When we go around by once every six weeks, and we've got four four different routes that we do, um, and people email in an order, and then then we'll take that and then deliver to various drop off points along the way. Okay. Probably about twenty percent of our market, but the 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 bulk of it is the two markets. Okay, and which markets are they? It's Ruberac, which is a little bit north of us, and Santa Fuela Ground, Ground, which is a bit south of us. Okay. Yeah, they're hard work, the markets, aren't they? You've got to get there, there, get there early in, in the morning. But uh, anybody that's been to a French market will know you can buy just about anything at a French market, including live chickens and sofas and furniture and just about anything that, that, that's going. But um, is that very much a farmer's market, that, that one, those two that you use, or, or are they across the board like the others? Um, no, they're both, both of them are a, a general everything market, but they've both got quite a big... Um, produce a food section within them, and yeah, during the during the winter, it's largely food. There's not a lot of the other stuff. During the summer, as you say, yeah, you can you can buy absolutely anything from, you know, Bob Marley t-shirts and sofas and beds and and anything in between. All the sort of tat stuff disappears in the winter, and it's just the food, mostly the food guys left. Sure. 
And when, when I first came to France, I've been here not quite as long as you, 15 years or so we've been here. Food miles were very important to the French, something they had you know, in Britain. Everybody was eating things and still are eating things out of plastic bags that come all the way from Almeria. But in and around France, the supermarkets as well as the markets actually buy their food very locally. Maybe not so much now, but literally in, in, in our area there, most of the food in the supermarket wouldn't have traveled more than more than half an hour from, from the surround. So farmers do, and pe- buyers as well, I think, treat that uh, with, with a lot of respect, don't they? They, they, they want local. Yes, uh, you know the, the the French clientele that we have at the market are are very discerning, and it you know it, it takes quite a while to convince them to actually buy your product. You know they want to know where you are and who's your next door neighbour and who you're related to and and how you produce it and what breeds you've got and everything like that before they'll even try it. But generally, once they've tried it, then they'll be back every single week. And can I just look into the regulations of it? Obviously, there are people listening to this who, who, who nowadays, I think certainly in the UK, there's a lot more of the sort of boxed lamb and boxed um, beef being sold through the internet and what have you. But how, how do the regulations treat you? Obviously, the, the French have always been sticklers for, for having or making the rules. And do they do they police your your your, your butchering techniques and, and, your, and your killing and, and your abattoir and such like? Um, well, yeah, the abattoir, we use a commercial commercial abattoir up the road from us. Um, so, yeah, everything is stamped and inspected by by the vets at the at the abattoir. And then, yeah, they, they have random checks at the markets, you know, where they'll come around. And big, the big one at the moment is labelling. You, you know, you've got to have your labelling right, otherwise they're going to get grumpy about it. Okay. Um, so labelling, they come and check temperatures of our, you know, our market stand to make sure the temperatures are up to spec. Um, and then we have to do periodically. We've got to, you know, send samples to the lab for for shelf life, okay. um, sell by you know, use by date verification and that sort of thing. Okay. We we do bypass a lot of the commercial regulations because we're we're cutting our own product, so that you know we and 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 we're not employing staff. It's just us in the butchery. Okay. Um, so a lot of the the really complicated health and safety stuff. You know, and all the the, the training and the edu- and the labelling and uh, inside the butchery on the wall, saying you know, don't, don't stab yourself with a knife because it's sharp. That doesn't apply to us. And you do have a family, I think, a family around you as well, and they all help out. Everybody muck in on this job. Yeah, no. So our son is now; he's just finished university, and he's now in the process of joining up permanently with us. Okay. And then we've got two daughters. One is still at school here, and yeah, they all get roped in the weekend. And the other daughters just moved back here from the Netherlands. Um, with a Dutch Dutch boyfriend, and yeah, you know, weekends and when it's when it's busy busy times, yeah, they they all they all chip in. Am they I... know they have to if they want decent bacon. Sure, quite right. I'll, uh, <laughs> that's one thing I need to, to send you in my ordering when I get back there because I want some decent bacon and sausages for that matter because it's not something we we can buy in France at all. And you and I had a deal recently over it with a stock trailer, and I believe you're getting into the egg trade now. Is that right? So tell me what what that's about. Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things with our son coming coming into the business. We you know we we're looking to do do a bit expand our range of, of product um and it's the one thing on the market you know you, you know there's a lot of people they always come and say on a wall where can i get good eggs haven't you got some eggs so because we the sh- the, the sheep flock we move them every day onto fresh pasture um every day. so my idea is, is i'm gonna then build build a stock trailer into a mobile laying house okay. and then we will follow the sheep a couple of days behind the sheep with some laying, some laying chickens. Outdoor, obviously, so they'll lay, in, lay inside, but you'll have them in an outdoor enclosure, electric fence, I guess, do you? Yeah, well, yeah. I, you know, because I, I use the um, portable electric netting for the sheep. Yeah. 
So we'll just do the same for the chickens and have a netting around the trailer where the sheep were a couple of days ago. The idea is, is that then they can, they can, you know, pick up all the, the fly maggots as, as they start hatching and that sort of thing in, in the pasture behind the sheep. Okay. And, and going on, going back to the sheep then, do you run them organically? Do you, how much, how much, I think you sell your product as organic as, as we all try to do with, with sheep. They are organic, but how much drugs and things do you need to use or you're you allowed to use? Is there, is there organic labeling or do you just not bother with that at all? Um, well, we're not actually organically labeled yet. We're actually looking at it this year um, to go, to get registered for organic. You know, we you know I don't use any you know in, any fertilizer or any chemicals on the pasture at all. And the sheep, I've been doing the, the daily moves on the sheep for what this is my third third year now. Um, and we do probably every three or four months get dung samples analyzed for for parasites. And the amount of my worming bill last year was about 25% of what it used to be okay. just because they just not, you know, because they're on fresh pasture every day. They just not, they just not getting the worming stations that they were. With, with that now, this listener can probably think that something in France that we don't get is a full English breakfast. And uh, you, you're the full English breakfast man now with your bacon, <laughs> your bacon, sausage and egg there. I mean, I just, uh, <laughs> what do the French think of that? Do they know about, do they know what a bacon, a sausage and egg breakfast is like? Um... It depends where you are, but yes, quite a lot of them do because there's, you know, particularly um, as soon as you get anywhere into the areas with grapevines, it's a bit more affluent and there's a lot of people who have spent time in the UK uh-huh. working as youngsters and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the you know the full English breakfast is, you know, it's like roast beef. It's one of the things the whole world knows about. It is. So anybody who's a little bit of it, adventurous will will we'll come and ask and, and and want to try it you haven't thought of getting the pan on on the side of the stall there just to start supplying that as well i think there'd be a market in, in santa Fe for that we have when we first started we used to cook samples on the market but it's just it's just a matter of manpower yeah. you know we haven't got, got enough manpower at this point to have somebody else on the stall cooking as well and, and I think you said to me you could do a market every day of the week for where you are around there if you travelled a bit further. And in the summer, of course, the night markets and what have you. But you limit it to those two markets to to keep your family life. And those are obviously the two that uh, the two that are most important. Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, we've looked at it. You know, the you know it's enough because it was you know up until this year it's only been the two of us. You know, so by the time by the time Helen's done all the all the cutting and the stuffing sausages and all that sort of thing, that takes up three days, and then she's got two days of market. Yeah. Um, you know, and she does most of that. And then, you know, traditionally I was doing all, all the, all the live stuff and running backwards and forwards to the abattoir and that. I think, Gavin, this has been a really interesting uh, um, talk, I think, from a few people who don't quite understand you know, the, the, how the life goes on in, in France and obviously from your beginnings as well. It's extremely interesting. And would you say you're you're settled in France now? Is this you this you a Frenchman and, and the next generation is going to be the same? There's no, no no moving from here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I say, you know, for me, for me, that you know, I'm not I'm not 100 percent fluent in, in French. I can get by quite adequately. Um, but yeah, I know the children, all three of them are, you know, they've all done all their education here. And so, yeah, there is, you know, although two of them have, have, have come back with, um, partners from one's from Sicily and one's from the Netherlands. So, you know, it's a bit like United nations around our Sunday table. I can imagine. Um, but yeah, no, as I say, they're all, you know, fully integrated with the, with the local community and, and yeah, you know, we say we've gone on very well with the, with the local community. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, probably one I mean, last question to you, really, with, with regards to prices. Are you aware of sort of the prices around about the rest of Europe and, and the UK? Where does where does your 
output price, I suppose your output price will vary depending on the cuts, but obviously you're getting more for it by selling at the market than you are at the farm gate, maybe 50% more, I guess. But uh, roughly where are your prices, do you think, compared to the UK? Our retail prices, we, you know, we do keep an eye occasionally on, you know, on various people who've got online shops and that sort of thing. And we try and keep it fairly similar. But yeah, and you know, locally as well, you know, we can't we can't can't go too expensive, otherwise we won't sell it. But we we try and be not too much more expensive than the supermarket for you know reasonably good quality meat. And and again, the French supermarket certainly when we first came here, you do get much better quality products in the supermarket than you do in the UK. That's a, it's a known fact. I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn there, but. Uh, um, the supermarkets now, I, I think they've started to bring more stuff from further afield and more things out of season now. But uh, generally, you can go in the supermarket and you can get good. You've got they've always got good butchers counters and good produce, haven't they? So as you said, uh, you're, you're competing against a, a market that's already there and has been there a long time, and, and uh, getting people to buy out with that at, at the same at, at a dearer price is obviously always been a mission. Uh, yeah, as I say, you know, we we you know, we try hard to be not to be too unrealistic for the with our prices. But the other thing about the about the French market is, you know, they they don't mind spending money on on good food. So I think than the than the you know the Anglo-Saxon world, the the French don't mind spending spending money on good food. They consider it to be a more important part of their their weekly spend. Absolutely, they do. And when they're not buying good food, of course, they're going in the restaurant for three days a week and having a, having their two-hour lunches as well, aren't they? Which are... Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know, you, we, we noticed it on the market that you, you know, we, we never have a have a negotiation over bulk discounts or anything like that from, from a French client. Okay. Um, but where any of the Anglo-Saxon countries, you you will occasionally get somebody who wants to negotiate on the price, but but we've never, ever had a French French person try to negotiate price. Perfect. Perfect. Well, it sounds like an idyllic life. I know you work hard and your family all work hard, and obviously there are people out there that wonder why some of us have moved to France, and there's other people out there might be considering moving to France, and I think from a farmer's point of view, if you are prepared to roll your sleeves up and, and muck in and do as the locals do, uh, there, there's, still, there's still a chance for, for a few, maybe some young farmers listening Listening to this, they realise you can go and get life out in the sunshine and, and, and still earn a living. Oh, absolutely! You know, particularly with animals, you know, you're never going to have an e- easy life, and guaranteed, they're always going to be out on a Sunday, or somebody's going to be sick on Christmas Day. Um, but no, it's it's you know, it's a perfectly doable life, and and you know, because you you know, you're your own boss, you can fit your life around you around what your family needs. So yeah, absolutely, if you're prepared to work and Particularly here, I would say that you know the the most important thing is that you've got to do the whole process to the plate. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're trying to deal in the wholesale, wholesale market, there's too many middlemen, and they're having all the money out of it. But you know, the the life is there. You know, relatively small scale, low overheads, and 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 sell it to the guy who's going to eat it. Ooh. Brilliant. Well, said from from Africa to France, I think that makes you a little bit of an anomaly. As I said earlier on on this uh, on this podcast, but uh, you're a man who, as I said, who who is prepared to work hard, and uh, and you've made a good go of it. And, and we've we've all found that very interesting. Well, as I say, we try. You know, when when you've got nothing to back you up, you you don't have a choice but to actually get get roll your sleeves up and do something. Really appreciate you, uh, you you sharing that with us today, uh, Gavin. I wish you every bit of luck with the with the bacon sausage and egg uh, business at the. Uh, at, at the markets and uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you at some stage and uh, I'll enjoy sharing a bit of that to all three of those uh, next time we catch up together okay that'd be great brilliant Gavin thanks for being on Top Lines and Tales okay thanks Andy cheers, cheers. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Top Lines and Tales podcast. And as always, we're grateful to our sponsors, Harbro, uh, suppliers and manufacturers of high-quality feeds. And with uh, show season rapidly approaching us, why not contact Harbro for all your requirements to feed your pedigree as well as your commercial livestock? Visit their website or find them on social media. And whilst you're on social media, don't forget to visit our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find a few photographs to back up this episode and other episodes.